All right. Um, before we kind of move on, uh, just an uh, easy summary, easy way to remember everything we just did. Uh, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me? Matthew 1. Um, so remember, I said earlier, each of the Gospels, each of the four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every one of them in a unique and different way is trying to show you that the story of Jesus doesn't stand by itself, that it's continuing in a long existing storyline already. So Mark did that by quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Matthew does it in a totally different way uh, by beginning uh, his story of Jesus with what? Probably one of your favorite parts of the Bible to read, right? So, and this is great. So we think genealogy, oh, list, or whatever. So no. In the Bible, genealogies are all about theology and all about storytelling. And so uh, your Bibles may or may not format uh, the genealogy in a way that, that makes this clear. But uh, who, uh, who, who are the three, is it formatted into three key parts for you in any way? Three chunks? Do you see that there? And what are the three chunks there? Who's the first, first guy? Abraham. Yeah. And so then are given 14 generations after Abraham, leading to whom? David. And then 14 generations after David, leading to what? The exile. So there you go. So first of all, what Matthew's done is he's given you, this is like cliff notes of the whole Old Testament. What does he want you to remember? Key moments of the Old Testament story leading up to Jesus. Abraham, David, exile. If you have those three, if if each of those moments brings in a passage and the theology of that passage into your head, you're getting what Matthew's trying to get across to you. And what's even more great is this, is that uh, people have long looked at this genealogy and when they compare it to like ones in Chronicles and so on, Matthew is totally left out uh, individuals who are come along in, in the lines and so on in between these. He totally skips a handful of generations to craft a, a genealogy that has three uh, sections of 14 names. And it's long, like, puzzled why and so on. And uh, somebody, this is about, I don't know, 300 years ago. I should probably track this down, but it's in almost all of the commentaries. Um, that Matthew is doing num- number symbolism here. So 14, so the Hebrew alphabet uh, 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 consists of 20, 24 letters, or 22 in the older script, but 24 letters. And uh, each of the letters is also their number system. So imagine how confusing that is, that your letters are also your number system. And so uh, the, uh, let's go, oh, sorry. What's that? Yeah, thank you. I did. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Um, the, the number 14 is uh, the result of three numbers put together, and those are the letters D, V, D. Now, in Hebrew, it's consonant-only language. So imagine taking out all the vowels. Uh, and then you have your alphabet. So that's Hebrew. It's only consonants. Uh, so you have to fill in the vowels here, but anybody, come on, just on silver platter. So David, David. Yeah, so what's that? I'm just going on a wrong name. 
<laughs> what did you say? What else could? Oh God, <laughs> got it. So uh, the name David is precisely uh, the D is four, and uh, the V is the sixth letter in the alphabet. So the number system works by what number it is. One through nine is the first nine letters, and then once it gets to nine, the next letters are all of the uh, uh, numerals of ten and so on. So four, six, four, fourteen, David. So in both in number symbolism and in just really explicit structure, he's giving you everything he wants you to know about Jesus and how he links up to the storyline of the Old Testament here. Abraham, David, exile. And if you're talking about David after the exile, you're talking about the promises to David and why they were never fulfilled and why you're still hoping the Messiah is going to come and fulfill the promises made to David and to Abraham. So uh, Matthew is really great because he just summarizes everything we just talked about in uh, the last hour. He just does it for you in, here in his, in his genealogy. So there you go. Okay, um, what we're going to do is we're just going to dive right into Isaiah chapter 1 then. And um, we're just going to place him where he comes in the story. And then I just, Isaiah 1 is... Rock and roll. It's just, it's, it's beautiful and amazing and heart-wrenching. And so we're just going to read it together and uh, just to get a flavor for what uh, this guy was all about. <clears throat> so Isaiah, just quick, we'll, we'll uh, talk about this. Look at the, the first sentence of the book of Isaiah with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezkiahu. Sorry, Uzziahu, Yotam, Ahaz, Hezkiahu. There you go. Uh, the, kings, the kings of Judah. So where does Isaiah live and where is he centered? Yeah, in, in Judah, and specifically in Jerusalem. And it appears in, in the stories about him. So, and where was David king, and what did David establish as the capital, and so on. So, where was David sitting when the promises were made to him? So, it's Jerusalem. What did David name the city? It's going to be important. He, he named it Zion. Zion. Yeah, or Zion in Hebrew. Zion. Zion. Which, as best anybody can tell, means something like rock. Um, but he named it. He named it Zion. So again, Isaiah. Everything uh, is Jerusalem, Zion, David centered. His whole worldview is. And uh, we're told he lived during the reign of these kings. So he's kind of in this period here. Uh, so this is the period of uh, roughly kind of the mid 700s to around the early 600s BC before Jesus. Um, he in his lifetime is going to watch the nation of Israel come to its demise in 722. Uh, so while he's on the scene, the nation's already had a civil war and split into two. Um, deeply, the nation is deeply compromised. And he's watching the big bad empire that's going to take out Israel in 722. Who's that big bad empire? Assyria. Assyria. The nation of Assyria is going to be a key player in the story here. He's watching Assyria on the horizon going to come take out the northern kingdom. And then uh, uh, Jerusalem is going to be left alone in the tribe of Judah 
for another 150 years or so until they get taken out in 586 by what next big bad empire? Babylon. Assyria and Babylon, key players in the book of Isaiah. So he lives in a very tumultuous time when right on the eve of northern Israel being taken out and southern Judah being left alone to defend, defend for itself. And so, uh, chapter 1. Anyway, chapter 1 is, I think, uh, a summary. Chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. If you, if you can lock into what's happening here, you get the whole book right here. Um, whoever has shaped the book of Isaiah into the form that we have it, and we'll talk about authorship uh, a little bit once we get to chapter 8. But uh, Isaiah chapter 1 specifically is meant to be like uh, an overture. You know, how many of you have ever been to a symphony before? You like going to symphonies, classical music? <laughs> so, you know how often, it's similar in, in jazz music too, classical like blue note era jazz especially. So, symphonies or uh, certain styles of jazz music will begin with like an overture of the melody, right? And it'll be, it'll play out the, I forget what it's called in jazz. The first, anybody? The what? The head? Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> so, the head, or uh, uh, it was also called by a different, like the first sentence or something like that. But it plays out the key melody. And then what happens throughout the rest of Offensor's Symphony, or in jazz music, is that it'll be that core melody, but then it all of a sudden gets played out in different ways and explored. And then the saxophone will take it, or whatever, and then the strings will take it, and we'll do a revolution through the melody, and so, and so it'll be all working out the basic thing that you heard from the very, very beginning. Does that make sense? So that's in a lot of ways that how prophetic literature works and how the book of Isaiah works. Chapter 1 has the whole shebang built into it. Not fully developed, not fully formed, but it, if you get Isaiah 1, you basically get the theology and the message of the entire book, and the rest of the book is just working out in, in different ways, in different solos, the different themes, themes of the book here. Okay, enough talking. Let's hear Isaiah talk. He says, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, and the donkey knows his owner's manger, but Israel they don't know. My people do not understand. Israel is dumber than... <laughs> literally. Dumber than an S. Literally. But that's his point. So he begins, he begins this, uh, this accusation with a, just a harsh slam. <laughs> so he gets the whole nation of people dumber than an S. There you go. So, how popular do you think Isaiah was at parties? <laughs> so, so, right off the bat, what, uh, what role, what's he doing in the storyline of the Bible? What covenant do you think he's honing in on and going to take them to task for? Abraham's covenant? David's covenant? Moses. So, the covenant of Moses. And what was the whole thing about the Sinai covenant centered around? If you obey. <laughs> If you obey, this is gonna go. This is gonna be rosy. If you don't obey, it's gonna it's gonna get hard. It's gonna get hard. So Isaiah comes. He's a he's a covenant watchdog on behalf of the Sinai covenant right here. So uh, Isaiah in particular, he's a he's a master poet 
with metaphors. The metaphors just stumble over one another uh, as, they, as they come out. So what are the metaphors at work already here, just in the first two verses? Israel is what? Compared to what? Children. Children. And then what? Animals. Animals. Yeah. So, so they're like kids who were raised up and in rebellion. They're like animals. They're actually, they're, uh, they're like animals, but actually they're unlike animals too. Because at least animals know who they belong to. Right? Israel? They're just like clueless. They're clueless. Ah! <laughs> Sinful nation. I like how Hebrew exclamations get translated into English. Does anyone else have, what else do you have for ah? Oh, alas. <laughs> I don't know. I think of, do you remember uh, the cartoon character Kathy? Yeah. She would always say ak. That's, kind of, that's the one that comes into my mind here. A-C-K-K-K. Ak. <laughs> Sinful nation. A people loaded with guilt. What's the metaphor here? It's like they're carrying this huge bag of their own depravity and sin. A brood of evildoers. Anyone have a different translation there? Offspring. Offspring of evildoers. You know the Hebrew word for this? Zera. Zera. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, this is the seed of Abraham, all right. <laughs> This is the seed, not, not the seed of Abraham, this is the seed of evildoers. Children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. This phrase right here, Holy One of Israel, this is unique to Isaiah's vocabulary. He's the first prophet uh, to use this word to describe Yahweh, uh, the, the Holy One. And he usually uses it uh, when he's accusing them of, of, of uh, infidelity and depravity. Okay. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with, with oil. What's the metaphor here? Yeah, totally. It's describing someone who's just been totally, just be, totally beaten, beaten to a pulp. Uh, head, heart, open sores, they're not bandaged, they're just oozing, I don't know, oozing scabs, you know, that kind of thing. It's very graphic, very graphic imagery here. What does this refer to? This is a good thing, again, when you're reading the Bible, we often just kind of, uh, you know, it's the most purchased and read book in theory, but it's also the least well-read book. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we don't, we don't stop and have to say, what, is, what does this mean? So this is describing a beat-up person. You have to stop and so say, what could this be referring to? Israel's like a beat-up person? Beat up by whom? So that's what the question, what does this metaphor mean? Who are they beaten up by? Let's keep reading. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as, like, as when overthrown by, by strangers. What do the metaphors mean? He translates the metaphors into literal language now. What is he talking about? Is that the Assyrians? 
somebody. We're not we're not sure yet, but uh, uh, as we're going to see, that makes the most sense given the current event. So foreigners have come and attacked uh, Israel and have completely ravaged the land, stripped the fields, uh, laid waste to the land. That's what the metaphors mean. So this is, a, this is a key thing here. When biblical authors use metaphors, often right in the passage itself, they'll begin to interpret the metaphors for you. Here, Israel's like a beaten up person with oozing wounds and so on. What does this mean? Uh, four nations come in and just ravage, just ravage the land. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. It's the daughter of Zion here. So we know the word Zion refers to what place? So Jerusalem. So again, this is a common, this is a unique phrase to Isaiah, the daughter of Zion. So cities and places become personified in Isaiah. And so when he talks about Jerusalem, it's sort of like... Um, I don't you know why this is, like boats and cars are referred to in English with a pronoun, male or female pronoun. Yeah, usually female. Why is that? She. I don't know. My dad referred to this car as she. You know, why is that? I don't know. So, my dad was like super hot rod car guy. And so, I don't know. So, in, in Hebrew culture, cities are referred to as she, and then in the, in the poetry of the prophets, um, they're personified as daughters. So the daughter of Zion represents the city and the people of Jerusalem, essentially. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, or some of you might have in translations a cucumber field. It's actually more accurate. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, um, and mostly because that's where my little notes and squiggles are from over the years, <laughs> and uh, so therefore, so but it's a fine translation. Your translation's fine, too. They're all fine. Uh, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Okay, now you don't have to know much about the Bible to know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Good, good guys or bad guys? Guys or bad guys, right? So look what he says here. Somebody's come and just over, overrun the land of Israel because of the people's sin. And only the daughter of Zion is left. Only Jerusalem is left. So let's go back here. What do you think uh, he's talking about here? What part of the story of Isaiah's career do you think we've been just let in on? Only uh, Judah and Jerusalem is left now. Yeah, so he's... So Isaiah 1 is coming apparently like right after like in this period right here, right? Northern Israel's been taken out. Southern Judah alone is left. And that's... Otherwise, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the whole point there is completely wiped out. Completely. Now, this is great. So, there you go. Here's the first close of the little poetic movement here. But then the little words Sodom and Gomorrah provide a little catchword here, because then look how he begins his next accusation. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So, it's great. So notice in verse 2, it began with a movement. Here, listen. He works through a whole section here. And then comes to a close. And then he begins a new section with the same words that the last section ended with. So this is this poetry and it's art. So first and foremost, this is 
prophetic poetry uh, is artistic handiwork of brilliant, brilliant, inspired individuals. So it's just good to read for the artistic sake of it, uh, if not for the message. Okay, hear uh, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, the people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of your burnt offerings and of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. What's he referring to here? Yeah, the sacrificial system, which is taking place where? In the temple, which is located in, in Jerusalem, in Zion. So, um, they've, all of this is taking place because of their sin and of their guilt. But they're still going on just daily operations of the temple and of the sacrificial system here. And Isaiah, he's going to say, how does this make sense that you keep on in your religious worship of Yahweh, but not paying attention to the times around you? that your world is falling apart because of, and he's going to go on. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now you read Leviticus and you thought, I thought God was the one who like, ordered the Israelites to offer these sacrifices and so on. And that's true, but that was also back at Mount Sinai. And they've had their time in the land, and it's clear there's this thing is not working. The sacrificial system is not pointing them to repentance for their sins and so on. So, he says, when you come to meet with me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my corpse? Stop bringing your meaningless offering. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, your convocations, I can't even bear your evil assembly, your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, I hate. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I'm not going to listen to them because your hands are full of blood. This is sock in the gut. That's what this is, right? So all of these things that the Lord commanded Israel to do, the feasts and sacrifices, all these rhythms of remembrance and so on, they've been keeping all that stuff going. And it's come to the point where it's so hypocritical, it's so disconnected from actually how they're living their lives, which is what we're going to see here. He's like, I actually hate your worship now. I asked for it at one point, now I hate it. It's very powerful. What have they been doing wrong? What have they been overlooking? He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing what's wrong. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, this is just a, a, a big, huge list here. So what's he appealing to? What have they been neglecting right, in their own communities? They've been, yeah, been neglecting justice. And again, you read the commands in the Torah, you know, a solid third of them are all about establishing communities that are creating safety nets, as it were, creating uh, ways of taking care of those who fall through the cracks. And in an agrarian society, you know, in their culture, widows, uh, orphans, 
and so on, they, they were the ones to fall through the cracks because there was no, nothing in their social structure to care for people if they didn't uh, live in a, a patriarchal house structure. So these are the people that fall through the cracks and you've been completely neglecting them. Let's keep reading. So how are you feeling right now? If you're Joe Israelite. <laughs> yeah, you're feeling, now you're, you're feeling beat up, right? And <laughs> wounded, right? Just like, uh, just like the metaphors in verses 5 and 6. But then look, this is very characteristic of Isaiah. We have this moment, just power, power, accusation, judgment, judgment. Verse 18, now come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Even though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Can it stop? Here. So, what? <laughs> So this is the first note of anything positive in the chapter, isn't it? Yeah? And, no, and this is very interesting, too. Because clearly, the whole point of the chapter up to now is saying, yeah, their sins are like scarlet. You know? uh, they are red like crimson. How are they going to be made white again? How's that going to happen? How are they going to be so cleansed from their sin that it's like it never happened? That's essentially what the metaphor means. How's that going to take place? And what answer are we given here? None. <laughs> right? So you've got to keep reading. So how's this going to happen? So again, this, remember this is the introductory melody here. Whatever's going to happen in the book of Isaiah, it's going to involve these horribly screwed up people being made healed and cleaned and cleansed from their sin. How? How? Well, you've got to keep reading. Keep reading. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat from the best of the land. If you resist and if you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <laughs> it comes close to another unit. So a little blip of good news, right? And we're like, oh, finally, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, and then dark cloud again, <laughs> and then it ends. Okay, how you guys doing? Okay, good. Let's keep let's keep going. The next section here, verses twenty-one to twenty-six. This is one of my favorite favorite ones in Isaiah. See how the faithful city has become a, a harlot. Which, I mean, so this is the 1984 NIV or whatever, harlot, prostitute, uh, whatever contemporary English word you want to, want to put in there. The faithful city has become, oh, a harlot. And uh, sorry, you will probably like this. So Isaiah is given to wordplay, and the problem is that there are always wordplays in Hebrew, you know? So we don't get them in, uh, in our English translations. But uh, this, is, this is how this line begins, verse 21. Echa hayata lezona kirya ne'emana. Isn't that great? <laughs> so every, okay. Echa hayata lezona kirya ne'emana. How has become like a harlot the city that was faithful? It's brilliant. So he, he, does, he does rhyming all of the time in, uh, his, in his poetry. Um, but it doesn't come across in English. So I'll point out more along the way. There's, there's great lines. Okay. So she, she once was a city of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. And we all 
have worked with like metal smiths and melting down metals to know <laughs> what these metaphors mean, right? So, yeah, so I, I have to look up all this stuff in the dictionary, you know, but I grew up playing video games at the 7-Eleven right here, right? I don't know <laughs> what any of this means. So, silver, so you're melting down metal, you want to make uh, gold or silver pure, what do you do? You heat it up, you, you literally put it in a big pot, you heat it up super hot, and what floats to the top once precious metals are uh, liquefied because of heat. Yeah, so what, rocks, or gravel, or impurities, this dross. So he's saying, you are like silver, but now your silver has entirely become dross. You used to be like at least silver with some dross. <laughs> now you're entirely, dross is that stuff that floats to the top. So then he uses another metaphor, flips it over, they, tell you, they just stumble over each other, the metaphors do. Your choice wine is diluted with water. You used to be like just per excellent wine, just perfect choice, exactly what you were supposed to be. And then it's like someone just poured a gallon of tap water in there. Yeah. Horrible. Who wants to drink them? Your rulers are rebels. What, what do these metaphors mean? Silver, dross, wine, so on. Here, here's what it means. Your rulers are rebels. Your rulers are supposed to be people who uphold righteousness and justice. But what are they actually? They're rebels. They're companions of thieves. They love bribes. They chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case doesn't even make it before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel says, Act. <laughs> Act. I will get relief from my foes. How do you get relief from your foes? You take them out. That's what you do. You take them out behind the shed. I will avenge myself on my enemies. And who are the foes and enemies? The leaders. The leaders of the people of Israel. Right? The people who are supposed to be leading the people in righteousness. I will turn my hand against you. And look, he picks up the, the metal imagery again. And I will thoroughly purge away all your drops. I will remove your impurities. What's, what's this here? Is this good news or bad news? Oh, it's both, yeah, exactly. So you remember when he said in verse 18, we're hearing the note, the little melody, part of the melody, we're hearing the note of verse 18 again. That there's going to be resolution. They're going to be cleansed and purified somehow. How is that going to take place? Well, now it gets spelled out more. It's going to be through judgment. There's going to come a harsh judgment that will both bring vengeance for what's been done wrong, but it will also purify. Through the melting down of Israel is how he's going to take out the bad stuff and take out the impurities. What do these metaphors mean? Oh, here you go. Verse 26. I will restore your judges as in the days of old and your counselors like the beginning. Judges and counselors. When you hear judges, do you think of people in robes with gavels and so on? That's what I think of. That's what the English word judge means, right? So robes and gavels. Whatever. So in, in Israel, the, uh, the book of Judges, is the book of Judges about people in robes and gavels? No, it's about military war heroes. That's who it is. <laughs> military chieftains, leaders. So that's the idea. I will restore your leaders, your military leaders, as in the days of old. Your counselors, people who come around the leaders to help strategize about how to bring justice and righteousness to the community. Afterward, you will be called city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, this is beautiful. Look up at verse 21. The faithful city 
has become a harlot, full of justice, once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell. And then look how the little unit ends here, verse 26. I'm going to purge you, heat you up, burn you down, take away the dross, restore your good leaders, and then you will once again be called the faithful city, city of, city of righteousness. It's a, beautiful, it's a great little poem right there. And it has all the themes right there. He's going to melt them down and, and restore them somehow. And restore their rulers. Oh, so there's going to be kings. Does it say a king yet? It will. But there will be a, a new leadership of God's people when they're restored and when they're purified. And there will be righteousness. Justice. Verse, uh, verse 27 and 28. Zion will be redeemed with justice. Her penitent ones, or does anyone have a different translation? Her repentant? Those who are repentant? Yeah, that's right. So, it will be redeemed with justice. The repented ones with righteousness. Oh, so, this is a key. This is very important here. So, Jerusalem is going to be melted down and judged. Who's going to come out the other side to be redeemed? Redeemed is a metaphor of coming out of slavery. They're going into dark times. Who's going to emerge out the other side? Not just anyone. The repentant. The repentant. So again, this is very key. Because in the last chapters of the book of Isaiah, there are a group who call themselves the seed, who tremble at the word of God, and who are humble and lowly before him. They call themselves the servants of the Lord, because they follow the servant, who accomplished atonement for the sins of the people. But that's the end of the book. We won't get there yet. <laughs> right? So it's the repentant ones who are going to come out the other side after the Israel's melted down. But rebels and sinners, what's their fate? They'll be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You'll be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. And we're like, what's wrong with oaks and gardens? You know? <laughs> so, so again, this is just an illusion. You've, if you've read Samuel King's, what are the types of places where Israel's worshipping other gods? And so on. On the tops of hills, by sacred trees, uh, where the goddess Asherah was worshipped, often with, with uh, sex rituals and so on. She was a goddess of fertility. And so all of these kind of dark, idolatrous practices, those who do those things, they'll be ashamed of their sinful, idolatrous past. You will be like an oak with fading leaves. You'll be like a garden that has no water. You'll be like, look at the metaphors here. You'll be like a mighty man will become tender. This is one of my favorite metaphors here. So what's tender? Yeah, totally. But even kind of smaller than kindling, it's like... Uh, Literally, it refers to a little kind of moss or fuzz that you lay at the foot of the fire that, and then it sets the kindling on fire. So the mighty man, right, who's doing whatever he wants around Jerusalem, he's going to be like a little piece of fuzz that starts the fire. And his work will be like a little spark and both will burn together and no one will be able to quench the fire. Isaiah chapter 1. <laughs> so what predominates here? Darkness, or uh, you know, good news or bad news? Bad news. And why, why is so much bad news? Just because God has a chip on his shoulder? Whatever. Because the people are really bad. Look at what they're doing. And so whatever God is going to do, it's going to involve a harsh judgment, melting down his people, so that those who are repentant will come out the other side, 
and be restored, and their sins wiped away and cleansed, and God will restore the leadership of God's people uh, for, for the future. How you guys doing? Okay. Can you do five more sentences? Okay, all right. So, so here's the whole story right here. Judgment coming, but salvation for the other side. So just think about this. Again, so this is all Jerusalem, Israel focused here. Isaiah chapter 1, right? So remember the big storyline of the Old Testament, though. Is God doing what he's doing with Israel just for the sake of Israel? Just so they can finally have a nice place in the land again? So Genesis 12, this is always about the nations. Always about the nations. Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days. What days are those? <laughs> so, in, in the future. So we'll talk about this when we, when we come back from lunch. But the way future, present, and past come together in the poetry of Isaiah, it's all cloudy and hazy. One second he's talking about the past, next second he's talking about the future, next sec- second he's talking about the present and the past. So always merging. But in, so in the future, on the other side of the dark judgment that's coming, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. And who's going to come? All nations will stream to it. Now there's kind of some irony going on here. Uh, because the temple... The hill that the temple sits on in Jerusalem, it's still, still there today, uh, it's actually not that tall. It's at the top of a tall valley, but you look across and the Mount of Olives is tall, way taller, <laughs> way bigger. It's actually not that impressive of a hill in terms of just size, whatever. So this is not talking about, this is talking about its theological significance. The role that it will play in, in the salvation story of all nations, the temple, what ha- something's going to happen in and around the temple that will cause it to be exalted to be the most significant place in the world. Many peoples will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go up to the house. Remember house here? From the second time I said, house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Who's teaching whom here? Yeah, God is teaching the nations from, uh, uh, from uh, his teaching and from his paths. The law will go out from Zion. This is a key, a key phrase here. So the word uh, law in English, some of you know this, uh, in Hebrew? Anybody? Yeah, it's the word Torah. It's the word Torah. So it, which simply means teach or instruction. Actually, the, uh, the word earlier up, he will teach us his ways. The word Torah uh, comes from a verb, a verb in Hebrew called yara. Yara, which means just to teach or instruct. So it's like what I'm doing right now. And Torah is the thing that is yarad. <laughs> it's the teaching or the instruction. So it got translated into law in English uh, a long time ago. In the first English translations, the Tyndale and the King James, and it's just, it's just stuck along. But it's not the most helpful translation, I don't think. The Torah will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. Who's going to do this? 
Okay, so lock this in your memory here. Just remember this is, this is going to be important when we get to uh, chapter 11. So God himself is going to teach the nations and he's going to spring justice to settle disputes. And what are the nations going to do as a result of being taught the word of the Lord? They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and turn their spears into pruning hooks. Who wants to modernize the metaphor here? So peace, peace, but come on, this metaphor has teeth to it. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, I, I don't know, think, what's the name of a tank? Something. Modern day tank. Abrams. So an Abrams will be broken down and turned into community garden implements or something like that. You know? <laughs> so that's the idea here. So tools of modern warfare are dismantled and repurposed for community building. That's, that's essentially what the metaphor is here. Brilliant, brilliant. Nations won't take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So something's going to happen. After, in, in the last days, after the judgment, in the time of restoration, that's going to involve all nations, but it's still Jerusalem-Israel-centered, isn't it? And whatever happens at the, at the temple, something's going to happen that causes it to be the most significant place in the world, and it will be the way that... Uh, the, the teaching of, of the Lord goes out to all humanity to restore things to how they ought to have been in the first place. That's kind of basically what's going on here. So again, this is, a lot of this is still imagery. Here. Well, how? How is this going to happen? What's going to take place? Who's going to do this? And when is this going to happen? So okay, just wait. Just got to keep reading. Keep reading. But, uh, and then verse 5, uh, Isaiah comes along and he says, what does he say to the people of Israel? He says, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So he comes back and he calls them. If any of this is going to happen, somehow, uh, our obedience, the obedience to the Sinai covenant is going to play a role, somehow, in this coming to, to fulfillment. Like Exodus 19 said, if you listen, become a priest of all nations. So there you go. Uh, Isaiah 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, this is the themes of the whole book. The rest of the book is just playing out who, what, when, why, where all these things are going to take place. How are you guys doing? Okay. The inner, the inner what? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, yeah. We'll we'll talk about this when we come back. Um, we'll just we'll um, I'll share some just reflections on reading prophetic poetry because it's jarring. Did you notice how many times it was like we're reading this and then oh whoa and then that and you know and the, the voice changes and then come let's walk in the light of the Lord, and then you really, you're horrible, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then it's just constantly back and forth. And so a lot of that has to do, that's how the book has been put together. A lot of it has to do with how prophetic books were made uh, in, in the ancient world in general, and then in Israel, and we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, very much it's, you have to slow down, man, when you read this. We read this stuff at just mock speed, and we just bulldoze it, you know what I'm saying? But uh, 
You got to get into the pathos of the poetry. Yeah, that's why it's in poetry because it's hard to read. So it's, you're supposed to slow down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the change of tone is very important uh, for getting into the uh, pathos. Is the right word? What I say is doing. I, I like to think of it <laughs> Wait a minute, that's kind of how it is, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's take a break. Should we come back at one? Take a lunch break?